The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to take your copy of the Scriptures and to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. The Gospel of Luke chapter 8. While you're doing that, allow me to say what a privilege it has been for me and Rhonda to be here with you this month. And not only a privilege, but a real pleasure. Uh, You can tell as a guest preacher when a congregation has been used to the faithful ministry of the Word because you don't feel like you're swimming upstream to try to deliver the Bible. And it's just so clear that Westminster has been blessed for so many years with faithful, Spirit-empowered handling of the Word of God. You are so receptive to it. It's just a pleasure to preach. It's also been a real privilege and pleasure because of the number of folks that I've uh, been able to meet in the foyer on Sunday after the services uh, who actually have been on the mission field. Uh, Your church is blessed with uh, people who dedicated their lives at the call of God uh, to be with those who'd never heard and on the mission field. And it's such an honor to meet and chat with so many of you uh, on Sunday. And then to hear about the VBS with almost 400 children, many of whom perhaps have not darkened the door of a church before. And then to hear about your your mission uh, teams that are going out It's just a a comfort and an ease to know that when you preach on things like encountering Jesus, extending His grace, that you're not swimming upstream. And that's what we want to do today is to end this little series, Encountering Jesus, Extending His Grace. And I'd like to do that as we conclude the narrative we began last week. And as we do that, I would like to become profoundly practical with you, if I might. And so if your Bible's open, would you turn to Luke chapter 8? We're going to consider uh, particularly verses 38 to 39. But I'd like to read from verse 26 just to review in our minds and hearts what God taught us last week from this account. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command him to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, 
not to let them, and begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, and they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can now come and sit before the word that by your spirit you have inspired and you have infallibly and inerrantly recorded for us. We thank you that in your providence and in your purposes of redemption you have determined and worked in power that we would have this faithful record of all that Jesus came to accomplish. And now, Lord, we pray that by Your Holy Spirit, You would illumine the Word of God to our minds. We pray, Lord, that You'd inflame our hearts as we hear about Jesus. We pray You'd persuade our hearts and our wills that we might be moved to do what Jesus has commissioned and commanded us to do. Lord, we pray it all in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. He was born to a Christian mother who taught him the Bible from his earliest days. At seven, his mother died, and he was raised by the, his father, a merchant Navy captain who was not a believer in Jesus Christ. The little boy's first voyage to sea happened at 11 years old. He lost his first job in a business office because of his bad behavior to picture what was to come. In his late teen years, he went to sea with the Navy, but he resented the discipline and he rebelled and deserted. He was caught and flogged and put in irons. And by his own testimony, he was uncorrectable and he remained arrogant, insubordinate, and lived with moral abandon. He made it a study to tempt and seduce others. Upon his discharge from the Navy, he took up employment on a ship that traded slaves captured in West Africa, adding to his immorality the evils of kidnapping and oppressing others because of their race. And this is just the briefest sketch of his reckless, rebellious, immoral, abusive, oppressive way of life. During one homeward voyage, his ship encountered a storm and a little Christian book that he was reading led him back to the Scriptures, and he was converted to Christ. As he grew in his faith over the years, God made him a pastor, and he was used by God to help William Wilberforce end the slave trade throughout the British Empire. 
He wrote hymns. And one of the great hymns that he gave to us sings this way. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. His name was John Newton. The person who gave us that great hymn of grace was once dominated and driven by darkness. And that's what we see in this episode with this man who we learned last week had been dominated by demons. Jesus redeems sinners not just to save them, but to send them to proclaim how much God has done in Jesus. Jesus delivered this man from madness. And then He commissioned him to be a missionary. Here's the life, ministry, mission, transforming reality that's disclosed to us in these few verses at the end of this narrative. Jesus redeems sinners not just to save us, but to send us. To proclaim Jesus. Jesus redeems sinners not just to save us, but to send us. To proclaim Jesus. Now, I'd like us to be encouraged and I hope equipped in that reality by noticing three aspects of this concluding part of the narrative. First, I want you to notice the pattern that this will represent in Scripture, the pattern that is in Scripture. Second, we're going to look at the proclamation that God has commissioned us to make. The proclamation God has commissioned us to make. And then we're going to take this to the street level and become profoundly practical as we look at the practice. The practice. One, the pattern. Two, proclamation. Three, the practice. All to equip us for the reality that Jesus redeems us not just to save us, but to send us to proclaim Jesus. First thing to notice is the pattern. Once Jesus had redeemed this person, He sent him. At first glance, it might seem as though Jesus is actually rejecting the man's passion to be with him. But what he really does is redirect him. The older commentator, William Hendrickson, put it this way, sometimes when the Lord answers no to a request, he has other things in mind. As we learned last week, Jesus had put the kingdom of darkness on notice that its reign in this man and in this region is at an end, and because Christ has come, His rule has been inaugurated and is going to be extended. Now... Jesus wants to leave a presence for His rule, if we might put it this way, an outpost for His kingdom where darkness used to reign. And He's going to use this man. Isn't it utterly remarkable the people that Jesus uses to establish and extend His presence in the world? Think about the twelve that He turned into apostles. None of them were what we would call princes in the community. A few were... Galilean fishermen, Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they would later in Acts chapter 4 be identified by the religious elite as this, uneducated and common men. And then there's Matthew, who had been a corrupt conspirator with the unrighteous foreign government as a tax collector. One of the disciples was a religious zealot, a, a religious terrorist, Simon the Zealot. If you put it all together, it kind of sounds like the beginning of a joke. A common, common fisherman, a corrupt tax collector, and a terrorist. 
just to name a few. But that's who Jesus is going to build His kingdom through. Later on, the Apostle Paul described in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 why it is that God has established the outpost of His kingdom called the church by the kind of people He's called. Listen to what he says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's the translation of what Paul said to the Corinthians. God has chosen to make up His church and therefore His missionary force from those whom society would not esteem so that God gets all the glory. Jesus' desire and ability to use you on His mission to the world is not based on you. It's not based on your background. It's not based on your baggage. It's not based on your status. It's not based on your sophistication. Just the opposite. He uses those who would be of nothing without Him so that through our weakness, His power gets made much of. This man had been the town madman for years. And Jesus is going to send him to start the mission in pagan territory. Now, maybe we look at that and we say, well, that's a nice episode, but it's hardly a pattern. Okay, come with me, if you would, to the end of Luke. Just take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 24, if you would. Now Jesus, raised from the dead, is speaking to His disciples whom He's made apostles. In Luke chapter 24, He tells them what the whole Old Testament was about. It was about Him. Luke 24, 46-49, here's what the risen Jesus says to His apostles. Thus it is written, Luke 24, 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Jesus is saying, this is what the whole Old Testament is about. My death, my my resurrection, and repentance and forgiveness that is to be preached, proclaimed to all nations. And you, that group of Galilean fishermen, tax collector, religious terrorists that I've transformed, you are witnesses of these things. And you say, well, okay, but they're apostles. Okay, come with me to, Luke, to Acts chapter 8, if you would, just for a moment. Acts chapter 8. Stephen has become the first to give his life for proclaiming Jesus Christ. And then it tells us this in Luke chapter 8. And Saul, verse 1, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Now look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching 
the Word. The apostles are still in Jerusalem. The members get scattered and go about evangelizing. That's the, that, that word, the word that's translated preach there is evangelizing. John Murray, one of our theological founding fathers at Westminster Theological Seminary, not known for being loosey-goosey theologically, Murray wrote this about every member's involvement in evangelism. Here's what he said. But although the special office must be given due place and esteem, the office of the pastor, this is not the only aspect of the church's mission. The doctrine of the priesthood of all believers received appropriate recognition in the churches of the Reformation. Now, here's what Murray says. But I fear that in our Reformed churches, the implications have been conspicuous in their neglect. If there's a universal priesthood, there's a universal prophethood. And herein lies the mission of the church, says Murray. It is the evangelizing responsibility of the members of the church that we are so liable to neglect. No phase of evangelism is more indispensable to the spread of the gospel and to the building of of the church. Translation for Reformed churches, Jesus has made every member a missionary and that is indispensable to how He moves His kingdom forward. How did Jesus get the word beyond Jerusalem when the apostles were still in Jerusalem? He scattered and He sent the believers to proclaim How did Jesus get the Word into the region that had been dominated by darkness? He redeemed this man and He sent him to be a missionary, to declare, to proclaim. How is Jesus going to get the Word out to Lancaster? How is Jesus going to get the Word to your neighbors? How is Jesus going to get the Word out to the nations? Regular, redeemed people proclaiming what God has done in Jesus. That's the pattern. And we could dig it out more from the Scriptures. But if that's the pattern, what's the proclamation? And that's the second thing I'd like you to notice this morning. The proclamation that Jesus has sent us to make. A number of years ago, I was playing golf with two other men. One man in his 40s had just come to faith in Jesus. And the other man was a wee bit older and he'd come to faith in Jesus about 10 years prior. But he was known to have had a pretty rough road before he came to faith in Christ. So the younger believer who had just come to Christ at the age of 40 knew something of this older man's experience and he thought he would test him a little bit. And he said, your turnaround was pretty dramatic. What was the secret? And the older man didn't even take a breath. He didn't blink. He just said, Jesus Christ. That was his story the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what this man proclaimed to his hometown when Jesus sent him back. Notice what Jesus says to him. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. The word declare there is the same word Luke uses at the beginning of his Gospel when he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Jesus is sending him to narrate the story of what God's done for him. So what does he do? The text says he proclaims. That's the word that's used for preach in other places in the Bible. He preaches what Jesus has done for him. He was sent to proclaim the story of what God has done for him in Jesus. Friends, that's what we call the gospel. 
The announcement of what God has done for sinners in Jesus. Later on, the Apostle Paul will define the message that he gave to the Christians in Corinth this way. I would remind you, says Paul, of the gospel I preached to you, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The message Jesus has sent us to proclaim, the message that's first, the message that's central, is Christ crucified and raised for sinners in fulfillment of all that God has promised in the Scriptures. That's first. That's central. That's the Gospel. And announcing that is all that it means to be a missionary. To proclaim the lost people the story of what God has done in Jesus. Now, it's important to be reminded of that because our missionary passion dies when we become distracted from that message or when we become personally detached from that message. We become distracted from the message when we think that we have to be a philosopher or we have to be, we all have to be scholars or we all have to be erudite cultural analysts just to speak about Jesus. That we need eloquent words of wisdom that go beyond the good news. I remember my friend Gus who was just a born evangelist and he would be speaking to strangers as they would get to know him they'd say now now who are you and he'd say i'm a man who should go to hell would you like to hear about that this is open in line i remember a retired pastor that i used to have the privilege of having coffee with from time to time and he used to talk about evangel living or another that used to say it's just hard for me to have a conversation with someone without turning the story to jesus and then i'm doing evangelism just because I'm talking about Jesus. We get distracted when we think that we have to be smarter than the powers of darkness that hold our neighbors in bondage in order to preach the Gospel to them. You just have to introduce Jesus into the conversation and the powers of darkness know who the King is. The other passion killer for missionaries is when we become personally de- detached from the gospel that we cra- claim to proclaim. When we think the gospel is for people out there and not for us. When we're no longer encountering Jesus. When we're no longer resting in the righteousness of Jesus for us. When we're no longer believing Jesus is big enough to deal with our sins. And so we're honest in repentance. And we're coming and resting in the righteousness of Jesus and repenting as we bring our sins to Him. When we lose the detachment, an attachment personally from the gospel for us, and we think that all the gospel is is something we're fighting about in the culture, which we need to lead in the culture with, but when we lose that personal detachment, it kills missionary passion. Notice what he says to this man go and proclaim all that Jesus has done for you. This man did not go and proclaim a theology that was not personal for him. Personal apprehension of the gospel should fuel missionary passion. Here's how, here's how another lightweight put it John Calvin. 
Commenting on a missionary passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 2, John Calvin said this, The godly will be filled with such an ardent desire to spread the doctrines of religion that everyone not satisfied with his own calling and his own personal knowledge will desire to draw others along with him. Now listen to what Calvin says. Nothing could be more inconsistent with the nature of faith than that deadness which would lead a man to disregard his brethren and keep the light of the knowledge choked up within his own breast. Don't tell me the reformers were unconcerned for missions. When we are rejoicing in how much God has done for us in Jesus, we are much more likely to simply proclaim the gospel to our neighbors. So that's the pattern, and there's the proclamation, and now in the time that's left to me, would you allow me to become profoundly practical with you? As we turn to the practice, I would like to suggest to you, recommend to you, six practices as ordinary believers being sent to our neighbors. Number one. Ask yourself, who are the neighbors in my life and where do I meet them? And then write their names down. Who are the neighbors in my life? Where do I meet them? In other words, who's in your family? Who's in your circle at school or at work? Your hairdresser, your running partner, your next door neighbor. Write their names down. Ask yourself, who are the neighbors in my life and where do I meet them? Second, ask yourself, Do I know where all of those people stand with Jesus? Are there any of them that I'm not sure believe the gospel? Third, are are there three to five of those people of whom are your neighbors who you're not sure where they are with Jesus? Are there three or five of them who fit into more than one area of your life? In other words, they're a family member, you also work with them. They're in your circle of friends and you also go to school with them. Identify three to five of those and there's a mission field that God has created for you right at home. Number four. This becomes a little more of a commitment. Could you put those three to five people on a prayer list and ask God, would you send me to those in whose hearts you are working? See, evangelism is just partnering partnering with God and gathering the harvest that Jesus has already begun. It's just picking up the sheaves that Jesus already begun. And would, would you be willing to pray, Lord, put me in the path of people that you have sovereignly determined to call to yourself so that I can have the privilege of preaching the gospel to them? And pray regularly for three to five people you have regular contact with on that list. Here's number five. This gets a little more of a commitment, a little riskier. Could you invite those people into your home or into your life so that they can see and savor the story of Jesus in your life? This is what Rosaria Butterfield calls letting people across the threshold of your life. Could you invite those people into your life in some capacity so they can see what Jesus has done, so they can savor what Jesus has done? Here's number six. Prayerfully prepare 
to have caring, Christ-centered conversations in the regular relationships of life. Prayerfully prepare for caring, Christ-centered conversations in the regular relationships of life. You say, where do you get that? I get it from Colossians 4. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. I get it from 1 Peter chapter 3. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's how the New Testament authors envision the church doing evangelism most of the time. We walk with Jesus in such a grace-filled, salt-seasoned way that when people bump us, Jesus comes out. But that can't happen if you don't have people in your life. All of these, it seems to me, are things that people who know Jesus can do in the regular relationships of life. Identify three to five people that you know that you don't know know Jesus. Allow those people access into your life and ask God, God, would you send me to somebody that you're calling to yourself so as I can give them the words of life? Now here's the good news. that I'd like to conclude this sermon and conclude this series with. You know that the Jesus who gives us this commission is no longer the Jesus who in a state of humiliation stepped onto that shore at Galilee. You know that the Jesus that gives us this commission is no longer the Jesus who's hanging on a cross. You know the Jesus that gives us this commission is no longer the Jesus who's in the grave. No. This is the Jesus who is raised and sitting at the right hand of the Father, who is glorified and exalted. This is the Jesus who is the King of the a King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Jesus who, from his ascended place, poured out the Holy Spirit on everyone who's a believer, so that he is now present with us in power to equip us to go do exactly what he's commissioned us to do. We do not go to our neighbors. He has not sent us as a weak, humiliated Christ. He sends us as the one that God has vindicated and seated at His right hand in His resurrection and who will return on on His chosen day to manifest His glory and His kingdom to everyone. And it's this Christ who has not redeemed us just to save us, but to send us to proclaim Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what an indescribable, inestimable privilege and joy it is. Not only have you chosen your people from the foundation of, before the foundation of the world, not only have you sent your Son into the world to live a life of perfect obedience, to die a substitute sacrifice, to be raised from the dead, not only have you sent your Spirit to join us to Jesus so that we are justified, sanctified, and glorified, not only have you done that, you have chosen to make us co-laborers with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you might cause us to trust Christ in His words, that He is with us to the end of the age. And so that to the ends of the earth until the end of the age, you might send the members of your church, including Westminster Presbyterian Church, to proclaim to their neighbors and to proclaim to the nations, Jesus Christ, 
raised from the dead. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.